today we are going to be finishing something we began five weeks ago now, technically, um, which is something that was either naive, wise, or stupid, I'm not sure. Um, but we've been talking about politics. And I've got to say, there's been something really weird. When I envisioned this whole series, I imagined interactions with you after every sermon where I'd be able to gauge whether this was going down well or not. It's been really weird to have to deliver them to like a camera and then be like, off, I hope there's, I hope no one's angry, I have no idea. Um, but the reason that we've jumped into this is because I just deeply believe that um, for most things, if we don't talk about it, because often religion and politics are like the two things you're not allowed to talk about, that's just not helpful. Not talking about anything doesn't help anyone. My, my favorite quote from Mr. Rogers is, everything human is mentionable, and anything mentionable is manageable. And so for us, if we can talk about it well together, then we can figure out how to be a good community that doesn't get sucked into the same traps that society does, and we can be wise with how we engage. Now, we're not all gonna think the same, I don't even really want us all to think the same, but my hope is that we can learn how to engage better. So we've talked about this series um, in politics, and so what we've been trying to aim for is a third way. Often it can be like churches get super uber political and everything is political and it's always political, and then it can lead to weird things, or sometimes it's like the other option is like just never talk about it ever. We're looking for a third way in between those two extremes. And then the other, oh, another week we talked about the dangers of polarization, about how most everything in our society is trying to pull us apart from each other and section us off into these camps, conservative, progressive, pakiha, moldy, like everything you're getting formed into your own little polarized world. And what we're talking about from a church perspective is how do we challenge that? Because we believe that Jesus has called us to carry a message of reconciliation. So how do we carry a reconciling presence as we talk about politics. So one of the things that I've said is that more important than the platform you vote for is the presence you carry as you talk about it. So do you talk about it in a loving, kind, humble way? It's been one of the challenges to move away from that. And then we also talked about how do you spend your beans? A couple of weeks ago, I got Carl and Brooke up here and they had a small domestic in front of the camera. That was fun. Um, but essentially what we talked about was how like politics, you're working with imperfect things. There's only so much funding. There's only so many tax dollars that they can allocate. And you gotta decide of the thousand things that are all important, which things are you gonna vote for? And when we're voting, we're basically allocating our, our beans, our, our points on what we think is most valuable. And one of the things that commonly happens is if you really care about the environment and education, and then someone else really cares about jobs and unemployment, Often what happens is we yell at each other, we'll be like, well, why do you hate the earth? You're gonna burn it to the ground. And this one's like, well, you're a communist hippie that doesn't have any idea on reality. It just doesn't help. All we're doing is we're just spending our beans in different places, but ideally we all want the same thing. So it's trying to think through that and we talked about some principles to help us with that. Um, so that's kind of where we've been. And today I'm gonna to close it out by doing something I said I probably wouldn't do, which is I wanna talk about a political manifesto for the church. I know, ooh, right? I do, It's because um, they matter. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, there was the debate, the first debate between um, Collins and Ardern um, on TV One, I think it was. And um, John Campbell opened up the debate with a question that was, all right, quick. First thing I wanna hear from you is, what is your vision for New Zealand? 30 seconds. First thing they ask is, what's your vision for our country? 
And then each one of them gave an answer. I don't exactly remember what the answers were, but I think Collins did something about like jobs, strong economy, and tech. And then Jacinda did something about like hope and positivity, and, which technically isn't a vision, it's a vision about a vision. But anyway, so either one of them, they did their thing, and I remember watching it and feeling so wildly underwhelmed at both of those visions. Underwhelmed from like, I mean, A, in 30 seconds, how can anyone give a compelling vision of anything? I'm like, John Campbell, come on, you need like a minute. Of course, says the pastor who wants 30 every Sunday. Um, but I was, so I was underwhelmed with that, but I was also underwhelmed because I believe as a Christian, we should have a political vision for what our society looks like. And when I hear politicians talk about one, I always feel let down. I always feel like it's so small, but it's so easy to get caught up in the political season about what these visions are. It's easy to latch on to a national vision. It's easy to latch on to a labor vision. It's easy to latch on to a greens vision or a top vision. You listen to how they imagine the country to be and then you're like, yes, I wanna see that. I'm gonna put all my beans there. I'm gonna invest all my heart and all my attitude and all my energies into that because political manifestos, political visions, they matter. They draw people. They shape countries, they shape movements. But we have to be careful about what kind of political vision we're getting behind and which one the gospel would call us to remember. The early church had a real challenge with this, um, simply because there was a master politician, when the Bible was written, there was one figure whose name dwarfed everyone else. It's kind of like right now how you can't watch a news cycle without someone saying Trump every 30 seconds, right? Back in, in their time, there was a figure who literally was politics. He was the vision of society, and his name was Caesar Augustus. And his young name is Octavian. And if you were here during Revelation, we did some work around Augustus and Octavian back then. But he's a fascinating character. He is the nephew to Julius Caesar. And his story is super interesting. See, when he was coming of age, um, Rome was in a really interesting place. They had been a republic for years and years and years and years. But then his uncle, Julius Caesar, had done a huge move to shift it towards being an empire being ruled around one dictator. And on one hand, it kind of worked, but then he got stabbed and died, so it didn't work. So what happened was there was chaos, and Rome had gotten fractioned. Some people wanted it to go back to Republic, where it was kind of like the senators and the elected, when we say elected, they're just the rich people, but the elected officials, <laughs> things don't change much in politics, do they? Um, the elected officials ruling things. But then there was also this other movement where people were like, nah, the move towards empire was really helpful. And so there was chaos when he grew up. And what happened was, as he came of age, rather than it shifting back to a full republic, Rome basically broke apart into three kind of areas. And it was managed by basically three different generals. One was some general that no one remembers because he disappeared really quickly. And then it became a fight between uh, Mark Antony and Octavian, Augustus. And Mark Antony was, Caesar's, Julius Caesar's number two, like his general who had the command of the armies and the troops, and he had managed to win a huge section of the Roman Empire. And the other person was Augustus, Caesar's nephew, who technically Caesar had bequeathed his line to, but then Antony was like, nah, man, I want it too. And so it had gotten into this uneasy truce, and Rome was weak, and uh, foreign powers could sense it. And it was kind of half shared who was in charge. No one knew who was in charge. And it was a really tumultuous time. In the midst of that space, 
you then get Caesar Augustus, who begins to get a political vision for what Rome could look like. See, he wasn't content with this half-baked Rome split into two spaces. He wasn't content with Rome being on the back door to the enemies. He wasn't content. I mean, Rome was a really rough city. There was lots of plagues and disease, and it was pretty poor. And Augustus was like, no, we got to change this. And he got this huge vision. And he began to rally and talk about the Roman Empire that spans the whole globe. And he managed to get armies behind him and troops behind him. And he got into a huge battle with Mark Antony. He managed to defeat him. And then within a short space of time, Augustus had consolidated the entire empire under his power. And once he did that, he began to pursue this vision of Rome solidly. Like he did some incredible things. Um, and some of it was actually really like modern historians look back at it and they're pretty impressive. He expanded the reach of the empire massively. Like from when Julius Caesar had it to when Augustus finished, it had expanded all the way up into Spain, all the way up to England, and then had made a way all the way around the Mediterranean, like massive expansion. Under Augustus, they built the entire road system. They expanded these huge roads that made sure that all of the loot that they stole from these far-reaching countries could be tracked back safely to Rome. And then beyond that, he instituted this really clever system of census and population so that they could tax all these other departments really, really effectively. If you know the beginnings of Jesus' life, it starts with a census where Mary and Joseph have to leave because of a tax. And what he did is they raked in heaps and heaps of money. And with the wars that he waged and with the expansion that he did, he ushered Rome into about a period called the Pax Romana, which is about 200 years without any major fights, any major battles, 200 years of peace. And so when modern historians look back at him, they're like, this is the guy. Like, that's a political vision, right? If you could hear someone like that today give a vision like that for New Zealand, you could imagine lots of people being like, yeah, I want to get behind that. I want to see my country grow. I want to see it get wealthy. And the, the phrase that he said on his deathbed was, I found Rome a city of bricks and I left it a city of marble. Oh, that feels good to say, doesn't it? Imagine that. And imagine if you're a Roman in Rome, that's a great political vision, isn't it? Like, he's a solid leader, and it's really easy to get behind that. And this is one of the challenges the early church had is because lots of early Christians who were Gentiles and Romans still were really, really in love with this political vision because it had worked well. Pax Romana, massive roads, city of marble in Rome. But that's what it looks like from the outside. But once the biblical authors start talking about it, once they bring their perspective to this political vision, they begin to describe it in a slightly different way. Um, those of you who did Revelation with us last year will remember this. Listen to some of the ways that John, the apostle, talks about Rome. This is the way that he describes it right near the end of Revelation. And he says, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. And it had seven, seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her head was a mystery. It's Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people 
and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Now, if you didn't do Revelation with us, I can imagine you being like, what? (laughs) This is not normally a Sunday morning type of verse. But what Revelation does there is it's really interesting. Again, apocalyptic literature, it's satire. What he's doing is he's writing a satire around Rome. Is he saying, you look at Rome and you see a city of marble, but let me pull back the curtain and show you what it's really like. And what Revelation continues and goes on to say is that Rome, this political vision that Augustus had, it was built off of slaughter, off oppression, off mass movements of slavery. Rome itself was made wealthy because all the far regions were taxed within an inch of their life. All the natural resources from all over the world were scraped and got together and hoarded back to Rome so that she could just eat and consume and grow fat upon the hard work of peoples from all over the world. And then John even goes so far as to say is, she sits on top saying she has peace, 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 but the peace she has has only come through the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people. And so what Revelation is saying there is, don't get caught up in this political vision. Don't get caught up at this low-hanging fruit, because when you look at it, it's pretty empty. It can be pretty gross. And the challenge that you'd have is that almost every empire since, it doesn't matter which empire, tends to always follow the way of Babylon, of Rome. America has been guilty of this. A lot of our wealth has come through destabilization of foreign countries and foreign powers and a military strength. China will be guilty of the same thing. Um, Britain was guilty. Like, this is just what empires do. We get sucked into this political vision, but empires always just destroy for the few. And what they're challenging us here is don't get sucked up in it. Don't get sucked up into small, low-lying political agendas. Rich Nathan, um, a great pastor, he says this. What the world needs most is not just another political agenda from the church, the three value points that you must vote for as a Christian. Surveys tell us the reason so many people, especially millennials, are leaving the church is because Christians act like just another little political interest group fighting for their piece of the pie. What the world needs most is an attractive alternative to the fallen world of politics. The world is desperate for a model of the good life embodied in a community of people, a different sort of political vision. You got that, Chris? I'll hold on till you get that photo. You got it? All right, we got another one. Anyone else? I'll change. We got it? Cool. All right. Bruxy Carvey, he goes on to say, and he builds on this, and I think it's really helpful. He says, we've been duped to think that if you just get the right people voted in, the right political party in power in place, it's the way to bring about change. We, the church, we want to fight for change, but we want to pour our energies into the alternative community that shows people a different way of being in this world. It's so easy during election season to pin all of our hopes upon Jacinda to pin all of our hopes upon Judith Collins, as if she might bring about the new New Zealand that we're longing for, as if one of these parties, labor or national, in three years will be able to turn everything around. And as the church, we can get suckered into that. We fight tooth and nail, we get on political forums, we get on Facebook and we yell at each other because we're fighting for this vision that none of them have any hope of achieving, at least not what we want to see happen. Because the gospel itself is a manifesto. It is a political statement about what the good life looks like. It is a statement around what the world should be. 
And when politicians are fighting here, the gospel shoots our eyes up here and says, imagine a different way. And so I want to challenge you with just a few snippets of what that manifesto looks like, that it can whet your appetite. I mean, we're talking about small things, oh, 100 million here, 200 million there, child poverty here. Listen to the way that Jesus talks about what life should look like. Jesus, when he begins his ministry, the first time he gets up, he walks into a synagogue and he gets handed a scroll. He stood up to read the scroll the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. And this becomes the textbook case. This is Jesus's political manifesto for what life should look like in the kingdom of God. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to pro he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was upon him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then Jesus begins to outline an entirely different way of life. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were fighting over, well, do we overthrow Rome? We could overthrow Rome and reinstitute our own Jewish Republic. And the Sadducees were like, no, we have to appease Rome because we fight them. They're going to burn us down. And they're trying to fight with Jesus and say, Jesus, what should we do? And Jesus is just like, your sights are set too low. You're fighting over these small political visions. Let me instead tell you what the kingdom of God looks like. And he walks up high onto a mountaintop and the people all gather around him. And in one of his first prolonged sermons of his ministry, he starts out his manifesto again with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When the political model for what you should look like involved Caesar Augustus beating his chest, instituting the Pax Romana, moving things forward, Jesus comes forward and he said, what does the kingdom of God look like? What does the good life look like? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the needy. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he begins to turn the whole thing on its head. Fighting about Rome doesn't even make sense. He goes on as they're trying to figure out, well, what do we do? How do we work at this? And Jesus doubles down. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And you can hear the zealots getting stumped Ah, but it's our job to overthrow Rome. God has called us to institute his kingdom. It's our job to go and kill them. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't kill your enemy. Love them. That is how this sort of kingdom works. 
In another point in Jesus' life, the apostles are fighting over who gets to be the greatest. They're fighting over leadership. They're fighting over who gets to be on top. They're fighting over what political leader they get to image. And they're wrestling with each other. Who gets to be forward? Who gets to be front? And then Jesus comes and he says to them this. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. They're fighting over who gets to be the big man on top. And Jesus says, do you know what I really want you to be like? Kids. You want to know what a leader looks like in my kingdom? Like a kid. They are understanding this kingdom better than all of you adults are. And he challenges them, and he challenges them. He builds on that further, and he says, he calls them together, and he said, you know that those who are regarded as ruler of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. This is what leadership looks like. Can you get a feel of how different this kingdom of heaven is? They're fighting over this place and this place, and Jesus is like, set your sights higher. There is another way that the good life is achieved, and it's not through Caesar Augustus. And it's not through national, and it's not through labor. There is a different way of being. And the Bible finishes with the political manifesto of what the good life looks like. You find it right at the end of Revelation. And forgive me, those of you who did Revelation with us, this will be familiar territory, but it's worth remembering. Because at the very end of this crazy book that talks about all sorts of crazy things, John lays out a vision for what the new heavens and the new earth looks like. He lays out a vision for what society could be like. Now again, contrast this against Judith and Jacinda, uh, more jobs, uh, slightly less poverty. And now listen to what the gospel wants to bring. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making everything new. Further along, they talk about this city. And it's fascinating the great, the great city is made of all these jewels and all these pearls and all these fancy things. And the streets are made of gold. And it's almost like there's something in John saying all the things that we value most, the things that wars are fought over, the things that we kill each other for, power and wealth and money, these are like fill that we use to walk on in the city. The things that our world fights over desperately that matter most, that's what we use to pave the road. That's how much it matters to us. Instead, it says, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
The city didn't need a sun or a moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. Our world is based on fighting as kings fight for power. In the kingdom of God, all the kings come in in humble submission to a good God and there is peace, deep abiding peace. And this isn't Caesar Augustus pieces that is won by the slaughter of thousands. This is peace that is won through the self-sacrificial lamb of Jesus who laid down his life for the many. They bring their glory and their honor into it. In the city, there is a, a river with the water of life clear as crystal flowing down from the throne of God and the lamb down to the middle of the street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing crops every month year round, and the leaves of this tree are healing for the nations. Reconciliation, peace. Our political visions, are, we're, we're fighting so low. And this is my frustration with this whole thing, is that like, I know we have to be practical. I, I get it, we have to be practical. But there's something in me that when we talk about euthanasia and these referendums, euthanasia and cannabis, we're talking about, okay, do we allow people to end their lives early to minimize their pain, or will that put other people at risk if we allow that in? And we're doing this low-lying flute, and I get we have to care about that, but in my heart of hearts, I'm like, I'm dreaming of a city where death doesn't have hold over us anymore, and where people at the end of their lives, even now, before the kingdom of God comes, my vision is that they are so enveloped and wrapped with love that medical care has gotten so good that they experience just love and peace at the end of their days. I have a vision that when they get to the end of their life, they have a community around them that stares at the pain unflinchingly with them and doesn't run, that isn't scared, but we enter into it deeply with one another. We're talking about cannabis and we're thinking what's gonna help people is we've got a lot of people in jail and that's not good, so we wanna try and fix it. But if we legalize it, is that gonna cause worth mental health stuff? And I get, I get it, we have to vote for it. But as a Christian, I feel like it's such low lying. We're fighting down here. Do you know what my vision is? Uh, with the gospel, I dream of a, of a New Zealand where people are so healed and restored that they don't need cannabis to resort to to manage their mental health. I long for a New Zealand where the gangs are reconstituted and the community that lives within them is able to grow and flourish and they no longer need to hold on to cannabis as a means to hold on to finances and turf wars in our community. Like, you get what I'm feeling? When we're listening to these politicians talk on these debates, like, it's fine. But set your sights higher, church, because the vision of New Zealand that the gospel has is so much bigger and it's so much better. We're talking about child poverty. I'm praying for a sort of New Zealand where God's kingdom comes on heaven like it is on earth and no one has any need or any want, where no one has to abuse the system in order to be kept healthy, but community wraps around them consistently, where there is always enough for those in need. I'm praying for a kind of New Zealand where wealth and status isn't the thing we give our lives for. So some people hoard it up in massive amounts while some people don't have any. No, I'm praying for New Zealand where we have enough and our wealth is something we pave the streets with. That's how little we care about it. And instead we prioritize relationships, family, community, holiness, righteousness, peace. A, a New Zealand that longs to see the fruit of the Spirit birthed. Do you feel me? You listen to those debates and it's fine. Like I get it, they're politicians, they have to do what they do. But church, do not set your sights that low. 
Don't sell your soul to that vision because what Jesus has on offer for our country is far better. It is far more expansive. It's far wider reaching. And it will bring about a new New Zealand as God intended it and dreamed it to be. Now, I get, um, there's probably someone here, and it's probably me, thinking it, cool, Colin, that's all fine and dandy. You're saying all those cool things. So what do we do about it? I still gotta vote, and I, I still gotta vote in these referendums, and I still gotta make my tick on the ballot box, and I still gotta talk about it with my auntie who's crazy when I go to her house for dinner next week. Like, how do we have any action or forward movement in this? I wanna finish with one final word that we find written throughout the entire New Testament. And it is ekklesia. Now this is the word in Greek that is most commonly translated as church. Um, so most people know when it's like the gathered church, 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 ekklesia. Like that's the way it comes across in your English Bibles. But ekklesia is far beyond just a church. Ecclesia, that word existed beyond the existence of the New Testament church. There were ecclesia all over the Roman Empire before Jesus was even born. The ecclesia was actually an organization. It was a group of citizens, particularly in a Roman setting, it was a group of Roman citizens who were set up in these far-reaching areas. They might have been in Ephesus, they might have been in Corinth, they might have been in Galatia. And the ecclesia was a group of Roman citizens who were called out from there to help bring in the kingdom of Rome, to bring in Roman values, Roman principles. They would vote, they would help distribute funds so that Ephesus might look more like a Roman city, that Corinth might become more the glory of Rome that it dreamed. These ecclesia were common. Um, one description of them is that in legal cooperation with the Senate in Rome, the ecclesia had the final decisions in all matters affecting the supreme interests of the state like war, peace, alliances, treaties, the regulation of army and navy, finances, loans, tributes, duties, etc. In other words, the ecclesia had expansive authority in determining the affairs of their cities and territories. So there was a Roman ecclesia in all of these provinces. And there's no mistake that Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And there's no mistake that the first word that the New Testament church uses to describe themselves is a new ecclesia but not an ecclesia of Rome, God no. They are an ecclesia of the kingdom of heaven. Their gatherings, their structures were built so that the whole city might know what the kingdom of heaven is like. They function in the same way with all these responsibilities, but now the ecclesia, rather than doing it to see Rome brought to Ephesus, they bring to see the kingdom of God brought. And they began to do the basics, things that were not supposed to have any effect they gathered together early on Sunday mornings and met for prayer. And then on Sunday evenings, they would share a meal. They looked after the poor in their community. They allowed different sorts of people in leadership. Slave girls began officiating their communal meals. Simple things that shouldn't make a difference. And they began to pray. And little by little, this small ecclesia that did things that were so ordinary and so boring, began to turn the Roman world upside down. Within three short hundred years, these small ecclesia rapidly grew across the cities, 
rapidly grew across the countries. And all sorts of people began drawn to this new different way of life. Women who felt chastened down and burdened by the patriarchy of Rome began to walk into this new ecclesia of the kingdom of God and find freedom. Slaves who were oppressed in their homes walked into the ecclesia and found that they were treated as equals because in the kingdom of God, we are all one under Jesus. Jews and Gentiles, these dividing racial lines that didn't make any sense, they gathered together in the ecclesia and they found that they shared one table, ate from one bread loaf. And they began, everyone began to see this is a different sort of kingdom. This is a different sort of vision of what the world could be. And the church exploded with growth. So much so, Roman senators, Roman leaders didn't know what to do with it. They wrote letters to each other saying, what do we do about all these Christians? Our temples are shutting down. No one's going and offering sacrifices anymore. Our ecosystems, our financial structures, our economy is changing because of the stupid ecclesia. And the church said, because they had a bigger vision for what the world could look like. And it doesn't come by might, it doesn't come by power, it doesn't come through legislation, it comes through the Spirit of God, drawing us to himself and reminding us of a new kind of world. And for 2,000 years, that is why the church has met regularly. My hope is that here in this space, and I know I'm saying big things and I know we don't reach it, but my hope is that when we come here on Sunday mornings, from your busy week as you've been challenged between all your struggles and you've got all your responsibilities and all the things that you have to do, you walk into this place and you gather with this community and you begin to taste a different sort of kingdom, a different sort of world. Because that's what the gospel is calling you to. This isn't just church on Sundays. This is a gospel that transforms nations and it starts with you and me here. And that might seem far-fetched. When you look at Sunday church, you may think, good luck, Colin. I've been to churches. It's just not likely to happen. Well, to close, I want to finish um, with something that Jesus said about his very own kingdom, about this different sort of countercultural kingdom. He told his disciples another parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and he planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Yeah, we're not impressive. I get it. We're not, we're not doing all the things that I'd like us to do. The church in New Zealand, we're not that impressive. We're stuck in infighting and denominational fights and pastors don't get along, I get that. Yet, there's something about the gospel. Though it's small and unimpressive, though it's gathered around a bunch of average, non-fancy people like you and me, somehow the spirit of God takes root there. And what God births out of ordinary people like you and me become something that can topple empires. Not because of us, but because that's how God always designed his kingdom to work. His spirit through people like you and me. So if I can invite the team to come up, we're gonna finish today's service um, by joining in something that the early church did. 
It's changed in form a little bit, but we're gonna share in communion together. A simple, really basic meal that was significant enough to transform the whole world. And so as the hosts come and bring it around, they're gonna pass it out. Can I just ask you to hold on to it and we're gonna take it together. And as they get that ready, I hope you're challenged. I hope you're inspired. Look, watch the leaders' debates. Look at their forms. Look at their policies. Get involved and vote. By all means, follow your conscience and your values and figure out what works best for you. Please do it. It's important in a democracy and we should do it. But don't sink your whole vision into that. The kingdom of God is so much bigger than what national could build. It's far more comprehensive than what labor could ever try to, try to legislate. This is nothing that ACT even has a vision or a grasp on. The Greens can't even get close to it. What Jesus wants to do in our country is far and above and beyond anything those parties can do. And it's also beyond their ability. No party can legislate in the kingdom of God. Hosts, why don't you come forward and you can start handing it out now. Um, and then you guys just hold on to it. No one can legislate in the kingdom of God. It's just not possible. But Jesus is at work here through ordinary plodding people like you and me, through the basics of communion, prayer, worship, community, discipleship, these simple things that the world scoffs at, God is birthing a new world and he's calling us into it. So as this goes around, just hold on to this and we're gonna take it together as the church did for thousands of years. Because our orienting principle is not power like it is for Augustus. It's not wealth like it is for lots of countries. It's around a person. And Jesus finished his political manifesto pretty much that evening, where he gathered around his disciples in a meeting that wasn't that dissimilar from this, and as they ate, he passed around this cup and he poured it out. And normally this cup had other meanings. They were in the middle of a Passover meal and there wasn't a thing that Jesus was supposed to say. He was supposed to go through the motions and say his thing about God rescuing his people, but instead he broke script. And Jesus said, this cup is now my body. Or this cup is my blood. It's poured out for you to open up a new covenant between God and humanity, a new sort of relationship. In the same way, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. See, the healing that God brought and the restoration that God brought was not through a strong general on a strong horse. It was through a broken man on a tree who bore our burdens, who took on our brokenness and brings healing. By his broken body and by his stripes, we are healed. And so for 2,000 years, the church has celebrated this meal. For 2,000 years, we have been doing this. And it's easy to go through the motions and think this is what we're supposed to do as Christians because this is what we're meant to do. But I would challenge you today that this is not an ordinary activity. Through these simple elements, 
these simple things, ordinary in almost every way, God is birthing something new, like the world had never seen. The kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. God is transforming our societies and it is starting here in you and in me. So in this simple meal, we celebrate that. You join in a long line of history, of ecclesia, called out people longing to see the kingdom of God spread in our communities. So let's take a moment to reflect.